Livia. Oh, you got a pencil there? You're okay. You're okay. What a great picture, right? Let the little children come to me. I love... If um, you're thinking of that time and um, you know, just playing music, watch the children come up with joy. That's what we are we're about. Well, last week we began our exposition of the book of, of Second Peter. And uh, for this book, I've established a theme that's going to carry us through the next few months. Now, who remembers what the theme of Second Peter is? Know and grow. It's not inspired. There's lots of different ways to look at Second uh, Peter. This is what, what I have grabbed out of it. I think it is the thrust of Peter, what he's saying. He, he puts a strong emphasis upon here upon knowledge and knowing what's true about uh, our salvation, knowing what's true in the Scriptures, knowing what's true and false so you can identify false teachers, and knowing of His coming judgment, the second coming of Christ. But Peter doesn't say just to know it. Isn't just, it's not an academic knowledge. It's to know Jesus and to know Him. And not only just to know about it, but to grow in it. He presses the application of Christian knowledge in terms of Christian growth. And several times in this epistle, Peter is calling us to apply all diligence and be increasing in our godliness. As he says in chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a theme, is to know and grow. Well, I thought that this morning I would do something for us that would uh, help us to remember this theme. And um, this isn't my idea. This is Darren Weeby's idea. He mentioned Flock the other night. And I thought, you know, this is a, a tremendous idea. What I want to give all of you is... I want to give you a houseplant. I have a bunch of houseplants right here. You can uh, take one after service. i got one for every household. So you can take... They're all, they're all different... Um, so if you get here early, you can get the one you want. Um, we've got one at home because it's the one that we want. So <laughs> that's pastoral privilege, I guess, is what you call that. Um, but in each of these, I want you to pick one up after service, take it home, put it in a public place. I want you to put it in your kitchen. I want you to put it maybe on your dining room table, just wherever people are around. A place that's plenty well lit. Um, but a place that people can see. And those who might come and visit you might, might see this. And I want you to take care of your plant. I want you to water it. I want you to give it sunlight. Um, if it grows too big, maybe you've got to put it in a different pot uh, just to let it grow and flourish. And, and as you watch this plant grow, I want you to remember Second Peter. In fact, uh, in every single plant, there should be, if, if we missed one, come, come talk to us, but there should be this uh, label here that says, what does that say, David, what does it say? Second Peter, know and grow. And so I want you, as you look at this plant, as you see it flourish, as you see it grow, I want you to think about the growth in your own life. I mean, ultimately, this is my aim for Rock Valley Bible Church. We go through Second Peter, is that we would know and we would grow like, like this plant. Uh, I long that we grow in our knowledge of Christ. I long that we would grow in our godliness. And, and, and you know what? There are many lessons to be learned in your plant. I mean, think about it. A plant really needs only a, a few things. It just needs water. 
You just put water in. It's not a lot of water. You flood your plant and it'll die. But it just needs a little bit of water constantly over time. Just give it a little water every day and it will grow up and it will sprout. And water is a little bit like Bible reading. We all need Bible reading to grow. A ton of Bible reading today after church will help, but it's not going to help a lot. What's going to help is just a little daily dose every day, every day. Read it. Find some promise in there. Find some verse. Memorize it. Think on it. Meditate it daily on God's Word. You want to grow as a Christian? Take in just a little dose of God's Word every day, just like water in your plant. A plant needs light. And with a plant, the more light, the better. You take your plant and put it in the basement. It's not going to last long. It's going to turn pale green and, and droop over. It needs light to grow. But put it by a southern-facing window and watch it flourish. And this way I think, think light's a little bit like prayer. Paul tells us to pray always. Constantly just, just giving thoughts and praise, constant communion with God as we go about our day. God, help me in this. God, give me courage. Talking to, back and forth with Him, being sensitive to His leading every day. Also, a plant needs a good environment. You place it in your home, 68 degrees, whatever you keep your home at. Some of you, the energy crisis, maybe down to 62 degrees or wearing sweatshirts around, whatever. But you keep it at a good temperature. Don't take it outside. You put your plant on the porch, it's not going to last very long. You put it in a good environment. Likewise, you put a person in a poor environment with none around to encourage him, it's not going to last very long. You're not. We need grace, we need kindness, we need mercy, encouragement, love, and affection to grow. Just like our, our plant does. And so I want you to, to learn from the plant as you watch it. In fact, another thing is a, is a plant grows slowly. Almost imperceptibly. If you go from day to day, you'll hardly see the growth in a plant. But if you go week to week and month to month, you can see the plant blossom and grow. And so is our sanctification. Our sanctification is often slow and painful. We wish we were further along. We wish we'd go faster. We wish we'd grow up like a bamboo shoot. But you know what? We're like a house plant. Just growing slowly. If you neglect your plant, it's going to die. If you neglect your soul you too will wither up and die. I don't want to see that. I want to see us know and grow in Second Peter. Slow but obvious growth. And so if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Second Peter. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the first four verses of Second Peter. I want to read them for you. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may escape the corruption that is in the world by Lust. My message this morning is entitled, as you can see in your notes there, Ready to Grow. I've given the, the text here this title because I think that that's Peter's 
aim with this passage in the first four verses here. He's going to talk about how God has given us everything we need to grow in godliness. We are poised and ready as believers in Christ to grow. The plant that I'm giving every one of you this morning is set and ready to grow. just needs light, needs water, needs a good environment. And it is ready to grow and it will blossom and it will flourish. And likewise, every Christian is, is ready to grow. God's given us everything we'll see to grow in Him. So by way of outline, I want to take one point for each verse and, and really show you the things that God has given to us so as to show us how ready we are to grow. First of all, we've been given a faith. We have been given faith. Faith is fundamental to our growth in godliness and without faith you won't grow and God has given it to us. Look at there verse 1. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In this verse, Peter identifies the recipients of the message. They are believers in Christ. He's writing to Christians. He's talking to those who have received a faith. In fact, this is the audience of all the Bible. The Bible is, is, is written primarily to those who have received a faith, who are believing It's written to encourage us, to instruct us, and to help us, primarily. Now, if you're this morning, you're not a Christian, welcome. You're glad to be among, we're glad that you are here, but know that my sermon's not applicable to you. My sermon's applicable this morning to those who have received the faith, who have believed. If you do not believe in Christ, you cannot say, yeah, I've received faith, which, in fact, you haven't received. And so I just say this. The good news, however, is this. You can believe today. You can repent of your sins, cry out to Christ. And don't just say, well, I don't believe I'm not a believer. This text doesn't apply to me. I'm just going to tune out and see you. I'll see you next Sunday. No. I want you to see how great it is of all the things that God has given us and just say, boy, I, that's, that's what I want. And believe and trust Christ. And you can have it this morning. So Peter's writing here, to those who have received a faith, to those who believe. Now, some of your translations might say to those who have obtained a faith. Um, I think that translation is a little bit misleading if you take the word obtain in the wrong way. If you take obtain in the right way, it's okay. If you take obtain in the wrong way, it's, it's actually a poor translation because it might lead you perhaps that you have worked for and you have obtained this reward or you have ob- obtained this faith somehow by yourself. But that's wrong. Because we have not obtained this by anything that we have done. In fact, the idea of this word, the New American Translate, American Standard translates it really well. We have received a faith. This word is often used of lots. You know, there's lots being cast, and the one who gets the lot receives it. It's not like anything they've earned. It just comes to them by divine favor. And that's the word here. You have received by divine favor a faith. I just want you to see again how often the Bible speaks about God's ultimate grace and our salvation. God is the one who gives us faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. What's not of yourself? The whole salvation. God's grace isn't of yourself. Your faith is not of yourselves. It's all a gift of God. And we see that right here. We have received it. It's been God's grace and kindness to us. Now there are several uh, characteristics of this faith here. In verse 1, first of all, <clears throat> Peter says this faith is of the same kind as ours. The same kind as ours. Now, he's not talking about Jew-Gentile distinction here. He's talking about apostolic and, uh, I guess, normal people distinction here. 
In other words, Peter is saying that, that our faith is the same as Peter's faith. There is no fundamental difference at all between the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and the faith that the apostles had. Now, some might think that's not the case. Some might think that, well, Peter had a special faith because he could see Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He spoke with Jesus in the flesh. At the beginning of 1 John, it's talked about how we, we handled Jesus. We touched, we touched Him. We tasted. We, we were right there. We saw Him. We beheld Him. We heard Him. And people might say, well, their faith is different. But Peter says, no, 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 your faith, Rock Valley Bible Church, is the same as Peter's faith. Now, certainly there is a difference in Peter's experience and our experience, but our faith is the same. And I think Peter's getting at that a little bit in verse 1, the beginning of the verse, when he says, Simon Peter, <clears throat> a bondservant and apostle of Christ. These words remind us of Peter's unique position in the life of the church. I mean, he was an apostle sent by Jesus himself to be his ambassador. He was the one who had the keys to the kingdom and opened the doors of the gospel to the Jews in the day of Pentecost, to those in Samaria. <clears throat> he prayed for them when they believed, the half-breeds, and then also to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He, was, he had a unique role in the life of the church. He was an apostle. He also received direct revelation from God to write this letter that we have here, 2 Peter. He wrote 1 Peter under the inspiration of God. And, and indeed, he was, in his apostolic position, gave him a unique role. But Simon Peter is quick to point out that he, he wasn't just an apostle up here. He, he also is a bondservant. That is, he's a slave of Christ. His will is to do the one of the Master. And in this sense, we are exactly like Peter. We are bond slaves of Christ sent to do His will. Peter's, God's will for Peter was that he would be an apostle. God's will for us is that we would be different. We would be a pastor, or we would be a mother, or we would be an engineer, or we would be, a, I'm not even sure what you'd call yourself, Mark, a tree man, or a lawn man, or that we would be a machinist, or that we would be whatever. That's God's will. That would be... You know, his, he was an apostle, but we are whatever, but we are all servants of the King, voluntary slaves to Christ. And as Peter mentions that our, our faith is the same kind as ours, he says, I'm a bondservant too, and we also are, are bondservants. The only difference is that we haven't seen Jesus face to face like Peter did. That's the difference. And Peter even alluded to that in 1 Peter. Remember in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, where he talks about, so you, though you do not see Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining us the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? And Peter's just saying that you all scattered believers throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, you've not seen Jesus, but you still love Him. And you still believe in Him. And that's where your faith is, and that's where my faith is as well. When Thomas was able to touch Jesus... Remember, he said, I won't believe unless I put my hands in his side and, and, and put my fingers in his wrists and his hands. Jesus was quickly to say to doubting Thomas, he said, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's us. We have not seen, but we have believed. And Jesus is really careful to point out here that, that Thomas wasn't really the one who received the blessing Though he did, because he believed. But, but just quickly to point out that even though we haven't seen, haven't touched, we still believe we still have a great blessing. 
for us as well. See, there are no first-class, second-class, coach-class Christians in the kingdom of God. As Gentiles, we are not underprivileged members of the covenant. See, when the Gospel went out to the Gentiles, the apostles gathered Jerusalem and said, what is this? How is this? Peter, you went to Cornelius there in Caesarea and, and he believed, what is this? And they determined, they said, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has given repentance to the Gentiles. God gave it to the apostles. God gave it to the Jews. God gave it to the Samaritans. He gave it to the Gentiles. He gave it to us. He has granted to us repentance. He has granted to us faith. We believe because God has given it to us. And the faith we receive and believe is the same that Peter possessed. And so you say, what is this faith? Well, Peter defines it for us. This faith is by the righteousness, or literally as the Greek text says, in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter here is talking about the great realities of the Gospel. Is it though we are sinners, in Christ we are righteous. We have a faith in the righteousness of Christ. You might take that, in the righteousness of Christ which is ours. We're trusting in His righteousness. In fact, that's why Christ was crucified. Christ was crucified as a sin-bearing substitute for sin so that He might give us a righteousness which isn't ours, but is His. Because He took the sin upon us which wasn't His, but was ours. The Apostle Paul described it really well in Philippians 3. He said that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but he said a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is the Gospel. That we believe we are righteous solely by faith, by believing in Jesus, believing that His righteousness is our righteousness, God considers it so. In fact, that's what the message of the whole Bible is. Abraham, the father of faith, believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God had his accounting letter, deb, ledger, debits on the left, credits on the right. And when Abraham believed, he then said, I'm going to credit your belief, Abraham, to righteousness. That's righteousness. An amazing thing. Is it simply by believing, God says, I, I, I see your faith, and your faith now as I look down upon you is righteousness. As we see the fuller revelation of God, we see how God can be just in the justifier because that's an unjust act, what God does there in the Gospel. But... Because Christ is just and the justifier. Because God's work on the cross, propitiation for sins. God can be angry with Christ and happy with us because He was happy with the life of Christ and angry with ours and they switch. And you say, how can these things be? How is it that we who are righteous can be seen righteous by God? The the reformers used to say, simul, I forget, simul justice et peccator. Simile, just, made righteous, and a sinner. Same time we are sinners, we are made righteous. How can that be? I don't know. But God says so, and if God says it, He can do it. It's His universe. He can run it how He does. And Jesus Christ is God. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek construction there is clear. It's our God, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Talk about the same thing that God can do it because He's our Savior. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, says you're just in Him. Alright? We've been given a faith. For given a faith, we're ready to grow. Well, second point, 
how we are ready to grow. We're ready to grow because we will be given grace and peace. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In some sense, we could just pass by these words. It's just a common greeting that you know, all the New Testament epistles say. But I don't think these are words to throw away. I think that these words have a purpose for us. I believe Peter's point is this, that you need God's grace and peace to live a life of godliness. Apart from them, your life will be in vain. Your toil is in vain apart from God's grace and God's peace. And every believer in Christ knows the grace of God. This is the principle upon which we stand. God's grace and kindness to us. And apart from the grace of God, we have no standing before Him. We're dead in our sins, wiped out by His furious wrath. But God, in His mercy and kindness and grace, has overflowed to us in Christ. By grace you have been saved. As believers who believe in the righteousness of Christ, we know of grace that we have. And every believer in Christ knows the peace of God. Fundamentally, this is what our salvation is about. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Or as Paul said in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, there it is again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter's words here in verse 2 aren't about the past, they're about the future. Peter desires to see that our, our grace and peace are multiplied to us in the future. He wants to experience more of God's grace. He wants to experience more of God's peace in our life. In fact, he wants that to abound in our lives. He wants it to be multiplied, right? 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024. Just keep abounding, multiplying. You get pretty fast multiplying. You not just say it may be added to you. May it be multiplied. May it abound to you. That's what he's desiring. See, grace and peace are important things when it comes to growing in Christ. Like water and sunshine help a household plant grow, so also grace and peace will help us grow in grace. When Paul was in trouble, great difficulty, thorn in the flesh, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. When anxieties come upon us, it's the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension which will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As God has given us grace and peace in the past, I do believe that they will be given appropriately in the future hour of need. And I think that's Peter's point. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. John Newton said it well. It was grace that brought us safe this far and grace will lead us home. Grace how we save, grace how we continue to stand because God's grace, may it be multiplied to us, may we know a sustaining grace and peace in our life. This is a testimony of God's children. And with such assurance in our heart, listen, we're ready to grow in, in godliness because we receive grace and we know of His promise of grace and we can just trust Him all the way. Now, before we move on, I hope you notice how this grace and knowledge comes. May it be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It comes through an intimate understanding of the knowledge of God. The more you know God, the more you see and embrace and understand and receive His peace. It's just that that's how things go. I love the testimony of those saints who have lived long and known God intimately. Their trust in Him abounds. The story is told of George Mueller. He's passing across the Atlantic Ocean on his way to Quebec. This is the 1800s. So, back, no planes back then, riding on a boat, or riding on a big ship, and... Um, as could happen in those days, fog comes along on the sea and it kind of slows the ship down, maybe even to a stop as they're waffling in the water going. And uh, George Mueller came up to the captain of the ship and he said, I need to be in Quebec by Saturday. And uh, the ship captain said, 
Sorry, Charlie, don't you see the... He didn't say sorry, Charlie. But he said, uh, don't you see the fog out there? It is impossible to be in Quebec by Saturday. And George Mueller said, no, no. Yes, I see the fog, but my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of life. I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. Let us go down to the chart room and pray. So they arrived in the chart room. George Mueller prayed just a simple prayer. The captain was about to pray. <laughs> and George Mueller put his hand on him. I love this. He said, he said, as you do not believe, he will answer. And as I believe, he has. There's no need for you to pray about it. <laughs> I said, thank you for your effort. Let's go our way. And then George Mueller said, Captain, I've known my Lord for 57 years. And there's never been a single day where I've failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain. Open the door. And you'll find the fog is gone. And indeed, the fog had lifted. Mueller made his appointment Saturday in Quebec. That is grace and peace abounding to a man who has known and grown in the knowledge of Christ. Fifty-seven years, never lacked an audience with the king. I love the story of Polycarp. We live in the first century as a disciple of the Apostle John. Persecution arose in the early church. And Polycarp was one of the atheists. He was accused of being an atheist, though so he's a believer in Christ, because he's an atheist because he rejected the Roman gods. So he stood before the, the proconsul, and um, there in Smyrna, he was called the cursed Christ. And Polycarp said, For 86 years I have served him. He has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Then the judge threatened to burn him at the stake, and Polycarp pointed out the fire the judge ordered would burn only for a moment, but the eternal fire would never go out. When finally tied to the stake, he looked up to heaven, and heard the words he prayed. He said, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. Now how could Polycarp die so heroically? It was an intimate knowledge of walking with God for 86 years, cultivating and experiencing the abounding grace of peace of God in his life. That's how it works. We are ready to grow Let's look at the third verse, the third reason, and this is, by the way, where I'm, I'm really excited. This is like the best verse. You can almost say this is one of the best verses in all the Bible. Coming here, verse 3. We are ready to grow because we've been given faith, we will be given grace and peace, and thirdly, because we have been given everything. All right, this is pretty all-inclusive. This like covers my, my first two points and actually covers my third point as well. Fourth point. But here's, we've been given everything. Verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything. Everything. His divine power has granted us, what? Most things? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter's statement here is just, it's amazing. God says He's given us everything we need to live a godly life in this age. There's nothing more. We have everything we need. Now, there are many who go about in their lives yearning for more. They, they, they go from book to book, trying to figure out how they can figure out their spiritual life. They go from teaching to teaching, right? from television preacher to television preacher to radio guy to whatever, teacher to teacher. And they go from church to church just looking, looking and looking, and they're saying, where is it? Where is it? They're looking for the right thing that's going to help them in life. 
Right? Maybe it's a rock band with high energy worship that's going to help them. Yeah, yeah, that's what I need. Or, or maybe it's a big crowd of people. I just need a, I just need a large crowd. Or maybe it's, a, maybe it's a church building with a solemn assembly and the liturgy closely held to. Maybe it's a charismatic church to help some miraculous sign coming upon them to help them grow. Maybe it's some Christian conference that they need to go to. Maybe it's some teacher in England who's going to help them. People will travel the world trying to find the solution to their problems. Looking out there somewhere. They think they simply haven't got it yet. But what verse 3 says is it says we've got everything in Christ. All the power you need to live a godly life is right there in Jesus Christ. You have it. People saying, more love, more power, more of you in my life. We already have the inexhaustible, indescribable love of God. And Paul even prays that we would know the love of God which is indescribable. Our problem is that we don't know the love we have. Not that we need more love, more power. We have all the power of God in our life. More of you in our life. We have everything we need according to First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. Maybe when you grew up, there was a kid on the street who you knew who was, um, had everything. He had the biggest house. He had all the gadgets. He had the nicest clothes, wore the nicest shoes, had the biggest television. Family had a pool in his backyard. Members of the country club. His parents let him drive their Porsche when he was able to drive because they had another Porsche in the garage. He had everything. And you look at that kid and say, man, that kid is spoiled. Listen, listen. In Christ, we're the rich kid. We got everything in Christ. The problem is we don't realize the treasure we have. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul spoke of the immense the ministry that was given to him. He said, My ministry that God has given to me is to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Just You can't even describe and explain and understand how great and awesome are the riches of Christ. Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, Probably the Ephesians are they didn't know. He says, I'm praying that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of Him. In other words, I'm praying that you would know Him and you would know about Him and you would know your salvation. He continues on, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know three things. What are the hope? What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing power of greatness, was the passing greatness of his power towards us who believe. The greatness, the power towards us who believe. See, our problem isn't that we don't have enough to live a godly life. Our problem is that we don't fully grasp the riches that we have. I read this week of uh, something that took place in few years, past few years, like like past two or three years, in a town called Stanley, North Dakota. Any of you ever heard of Stanley, North Dakota? It's the, anybody? Anybody heard of Stanley, North Dakota? Nobody? Alright. This is a thriving metropolis of 2,000 people, 50 miles south of Canada on the northwest side of uh, North Dakota. Lance, you're the South Dakota guy, but that's out of your district, huh? <laughs> Way out, huh? Stanley. All right, well, in recent years, recent days, really, literally, Stanley, North Dakota has been put on the map. People have known for years a big oil field underneath Stanley. Seemingly insignificant town. All this big oil underneath there. But due to the location of the oil in the ground, 
it, it somehow with technology has made it very difficult to get at that oil. So they got all this oil down there, they've known about it, they can't get to it. However, in recent years, a couple things have happened. Technology, of course, is ever-increasing. Horizontal drilling techniques has helped. I don't know how you, how you drill horizontally, but they're learning to drill horizontally, apparently. And uh, increasing price of oil. I mean, that's only been recent. Increasing price of oil. The oil company is saying, well, let's, let's pursue something else. Let's, let's try this oil field, see if we can get down there. And with those things, uh, they've been able to reach that oil field. And in Stanley, North Dakota, they've struck oil, black gold, as it is called, the mayor of Stanley, Michael Hynek, indicates the region is so flush with oil it's nearly impossible to drill a well and come up dry. He says, prospects for the future looking promising. Here's a geologist said this, the continual amount of oil in North Dakota is three times as much as Texas. We're doing as much as we can to get it out. This discovery has made many in the region instant millionaires. Many people who own this farmland now, on this oil field, this Jed Clampett, <laughs> this happened like the last year. Uh, Mark Nisham said, my grandfather broke this land with oxen in 1894. Immigrants, immigrants coming to Stanley, North Dakota, breaking the ground with oxen, pulling this stuff, you know, farming. In 2007, he said his land sprouted Durham wheat. That was his harvest in 2007. And after the harvest, an oil company came, began to drill in his land. In August 2008, this is three months ago, Mark Nisham and his wife received their first royalty check, which represented six months of drilling and four wells in his property. Here's what he said. It was quite large. <laughs> it was three times what I make farming in a year. And the portion he got was split among he and his brothers and sisters who are out scattered about the United States, not living there in Stanley, North Dakota any longer. But, you know, the parents owned the property, passed on to the kids, so he only got a portion of it. And it's three times as much as was farming. Larry Leisted said this. He said, these people have been farming rocks for generations. For generations. Farming rocks. Just the land is... I mean, you think about it. How good is the farmland 50 miles south of Canada? Uh, not very good. I'll take Southern Illinois, thank you very much. But he said it's like winning the lottery. These people won the lottery. Why? It's because they've finally been able to get at what they've owned, what they've had for years. They just haven't been able to get at it. And so also, the story of our text, our salvation in Christ is rich and abundant. It's been graciously given to us by the hand of the God. And it is more valuable than any acreage in North Dakota. The oil riches in North Dakota are going to dry up, but the riches of Christ will go on for eternity. And that that we have in our salvation will continue forever and ever and ever and ever with great blessings and great pleasure and great delight in the presence of God. Unfathomable riches of Christ. Sadly, we live like those lived in Stanley a few years ago. They were eking out existence, farming rocks. They had a gold mine beneath them. And too often we live just merely on the surface, not realizing the depths of the treasure that we have in Christ. Many of the children of the farmers in Stanley left the community to seek a better life elsewhere. I also read that many of those in Stanley um, sold the mineral rights to their land during the Great Dust Bowl in the 1930s. They knew there was oil down there. Oh, we'll never get it, but here's free money. 
And so lots of these people own this land, but they sold away their mineral rights. They don't have any right to the oil. What a difficult thing it is for many. But so many of us maybe sold it off because we're trying to find our oil some other place and some other experience rather than experiencing the grace of Christ. Because everything that we need for life and godliness is already ours in Christ. We need to just look at what Christ has given us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right? That means that there is not a single blessing floating out there somewhere that we don't have. Every spiritual blessing we have, if there is to give, we have. See, God isn't out there in heaven someplace withholding us a spiritual blessing that we desperately need. We'll never go to heaven someday walking through these mansions and come upon a closet and say, Whoa! That's a great blessing! Why didn't you give that one to me, God? He has emptied all His closets. He has emptied all His barns and has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing up there that we need for life here and now. There's nothing else that we need for life and godliness. Psalm 84, verse 11 says, The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. The promise of Scripture is that my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. Paul asked in Romans 8, 32, rhetorically, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God gives the best He could give us, His Son, He will never withhold anything from us. Think about that rich kid. If the father had resources to give the rich kid a new Cadillac, do you think he'd withhold power windows and power locks from him? I don't think so. Think about the father has the resources to take his son on a special skiing trip to Colorado. Do you think he's going to pay for his lift ticket? I think so. And so God, if He's given us Christ... He's not going to not give us anything else. That's the argument of Romans 8.32. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Of course we have all things in Christ. John MacArthur said it well. To possess the Lord Jesus is to have every spiritual resource. All strength, wisdom, comfort, joy, peace, meaning, value, purpose, hope, and fulfillment in life now and forever is bound up in Him Christianity is an all-sufficient relationship with an all-sufficient Christ. That's what it's it's about. That's why we focus on the cross. Because in Christ we have everything we need. We just need to discover what we have. Notice, however, that we've not received these things by our own power. It's not our own efforts, not our own might. Rather, it's by God's power. If If you look there, it's by His divine power that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You know, we know that nothing is impossible with God. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, speaking them into existence. Creating them with a word. He can do that. He can bring a child from a virgin. He can resurrect a body from the dead. And He can give us everything we need to live a godly life. And, and catch this, not only can God do it, but God has done it. When it comes to life and godliness, everything we have. When we fail in our godliness, 
It isn't because we don't have the resources. I know many times I've been working on a house project, trying to do something like, oh, I don't have that tool. Yeah, go and buy that tool. That, that, that doesn't work in God's kingdom. We have the resources. Our problem is because we don't use the resources that we have. You know, there's a saying that goes around, we only use 10% of our brain. Have you heard that? You know, it's probably not true. did some research this week. It's probably not true. Um, I won't get into that. I guess we use more, but we probably don't use our capacity. But listen, when it comes to living a godly life, we may be using only 10% of what God has given to us spiritually. That may be very true, where we are. A lack in spiritual growth comes not comes because you're not giving what God has given to you. And every time you sin, it's because you failed to use what God has given you to live a godly life. 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is how it works. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation, will provide a way of escape that you may also be able to endure it. When a temptation knows, listen, know that God is regulating the strength of that temptation. He knows how much you need. He knows your knowledge of Him. He knows your growth in Him. And He, he just gives you what you, He knows you can handle. And when the temptation comes, He's going to provide the way of escape. The way of escape is by applying what God has given to us in Christ through the cross. And when tempted to sin, I just tell you, people, think of the cross. Think of Christ crucified when tempted to sin. See His agony. See His pain. See His love. Think about Christ, what Christ has done for you. He was poured out to death so that we might live. He wasn't poured out to death so that we could live in our sin. He's put out to death that we might live. Think of what Jesus endured. He's our example. Think about the pain and shame He endured. Think about how He can sympathize with us in our weakness. Say, Jesus, I need Your help right now. And He'll pull up spiritual resources in Christ to help us. He's our high priest praying for us right now. In fact, that was, you know, He's the greatest of high priests because He didn't just bring an animal, some animal. He brought Himself and offered up Himself. Supreme sacrifice. He's a supreme high priest. He knows he knows of us. He prays for us in our temptation. He cares us. He loved for us. Listen, when we are sinners, Christ died for us. And we're being tempted, Christ cares for us. And He's there for us. So just think of the cross. Take you to Christ. Take His high priestly role. Plead to Him. Pray for Him. And that's all you need. You don't need some voice of God. You don't need some other experience. You don't need some new teaching. You just need Jesus. That's all you need to conquer that. So think on those things. And again, I hope you notice the way that God gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Here it is. It's through the true knowledge. It's through knowing. It's through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. It's one of those places, again, where the theme of Second Peter picks up, knowing and growing. It's through the knowledge of Christ we received everything we need to grow. It's knowledge about Jesus. It's knowledge about Him. The true knowledge of Him. It's not... Factual knowledge only per se. It's the true knowledge, the relationship knowledge, the deep knowledge of Him. And you need to know Him that you might grow in Him. There's a last phrase there in verse 3. He's called us by His own glory and excellence. I love these ways where it speaks about how Jesus works. How He calls us. He calls us by His own glory and excellence. He doesn't draft us like the military, coming whether we like it or not. He doesn't call us to come in and work some overtime hours this weekend like the boss. He doesn't like an overbearing father who says, you have to do this right now, son. 
No, he calls us like the President of the United States would call us. Hello. Yes, this is the President. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if you'd like to come to the White House. I have a big, important speech that I need to give tomorrow, and I'm just wondering if you'd like to have dinner with me before the speech and maybe join me in the speech. Would you like to come? What do you say? That's glory and excellence to which he's calling us. Of course I want to come. I want to be involved in that. And that's what Christ is doing for us. We would jump at the chance, the pomp and majesty of the President. And that's how Christ calls us. That's how He gives us everything. He gives everything for our good. So, our final point this morning, verse 4. We're ready to grow because we've been given a faith by God. We will be given grace and peace. We have been given everything. And finally, we have been given promises. Verse 4. Here we go. For by these... He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions in the world by lust. Lots of words packed in there, somewhat confusing, somewhat difficult, but basic in its instruction that God has given us promises. And again, notice this verb here. By these God has granted to us His promises. Granted is another verb for give. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us. It has given to us. Verse 1, to those who have been given a faith. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to us. God gives them to us. I mean, this passage is all about the sovereignty of God. It's all about the grace of God. It's all about the gift of God. Everything that God gives to us. He gives us everything. He gives us a pot. He gives us light. He gives us water. He gives us a plant. He gives us an environment. And we are ready to grow because of His grace and His kindness. You know, the Bible's full of promises. When Mark Dever wrote a book surveying the entire Old Testament... Anyone know what he titled that book? Darren, you're a Mark Dever guy. No, don't know me. Mark, Old Testament book. Promises made. It's the title of his book. New Testament book. What did he title it? Survey of the New Testament. He just went through book by book by book, like a chapter per book. What did he call the New Testament? Promises. Promises kept. Promises made, promises kept. You look at the whole Bible, that's about what it is. The Old Testament, God is making promises. In the New Testament, God is keeping His promises. They're coming about in Christ. In our day and age, we're rejoicing in the promises that God has kept. He promised to the Jews that a Messiah would come and redeem you and help you. And now that promise has been fulfilled. And it's not just to the Jews only, but it's also to every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. In fact, our people from every tribe, tongue and nation who will be worshipping the slain lamb someday. It's a promise which Peter spoke on the day when preaching to Jews, the day of Pentecost. On his day, he called his readers, his listeners to repent, called them to be baptized. He said, the promises are for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. In other words, the Messiah has come. We are now recipients of His promise. This promise is for you. And He used the same language here. We have received the promises. We have been granted to us the promises. He's given us these precious and magnificent promises. He calls them precious and magnificent. Listen, there's nothing more precious than the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. You can find the most precious metals, the most precious diamonds. There's nothing more precious than salvation in Christ. There's nothing more magnificent than the salvation we have in Christ. You go to the Grand Canyon, you look in your telescopes, there's nothing more magnificent than the promises we have in Christ that are fulfilled. In fact, back in 1 Peter, Peter talked about the prophets who wrote of these things. 
He said, the prophets who prophesy the grace that would come to you, the prophesying, they're making promises of God, that they're going to get the promises that are coming to you. He said they made careful search and inquiries. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Who, who's this going to be? Who's it going to be? And they, they searched because it was more precious than gold, more magnificent than silver. They're looking to know when Messiah comes. But now, since the promise has been kept, we know. Messiah was born of a virgin in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. He came to save His people from their sins. And we have received the faith have been delivered by our sins by the righteousness of Christ. And the promises that, are, that were then are now ours in Christ. We have, as it says here in verse, verse 4, become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Now, these are hard to understand what exactly this means. I think that it describes, though, the character of change in our lives. We have become God-like. We have not become God in being, in essence, but we have become God-like in that we have received something that's different. And think about your salvation. When Peter talked about his salvation in chapter 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, who according to His great mercy has called us to be, caused us to be born again. Think about that. God has caused us to be born again. He's the one that caused us. It's not we, we didn't born ourselves again. God is the one that came down upon us, caused us to be born again. You think about that whole phrase. We've born again. Born, how are we born again? Well, you know what? We've been born again. And that now we have been born out of the flesh into be partakers of the divine nature. God has changed us. We are different now. We are, as the Bible says, we are new creatures in Christ. The old things are gone. The new things have come because now we are partakers of the divine nature. God has done a work in our soul to transform us. He used this imagery throughout the Bible. He talks about our blind eyes. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, and yet he says that he is the one that opens eyes. So we see, right? We've gone from blind eyes, which didn't see as truth, but now we're partakers of the divine nature. We have eyes that see like God. We see it's true. We see what's right. We see the glories of the, of the gospel. Our darkened minds, Ephesians 4, have now been enlightened, Romans chapter 8. Our hard hearts have been made soft, Ezekiel 36. Our dead spirits have now come alive together in Christ. I mean, he describes before us dead, and now we are alive because we live in Him. And in that sense, we are partakers of the divine nature. His Spirit has come to live in us. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks about how we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been changed by the power of God, having Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are partakers of the divine nature because now Christ lives in us. Through us, with us, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that the aim of our life is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Now that we come to God, but we come like God, He will transform us to be more and more like Him. In that sense, we can understand this last phrase in Ephesians 4 about how we escape the corruption that's in the world by lust because we're different. We're no longer slaves of sin, but now we're slaves of righteousness because God has changed us. And we're different There'll be a day when we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. That's where we're headed, to be like God. It's not saying we are God, alright? That's blasphemy. But saying that we will be like, we will be sinless someday. We'll be, if we're forgiven in Christ, we are cleansed and pured. In that sense, we are like God, holy and blameless before Him. Peter alludes 
to this promise this day in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, according to His promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's the promise. I'm looking, looking forward. So these promises I think He's talking about here in, in verse 4 about the precious promises granted to us. It's been those fulfilled in Christ, but also speaks about future promises that we have of His coming back. So we are ready to grow. We are ready to grow. I think that's Peter's point. Coming next week in verse 5, Peter's going to talk about what a growing Christian life looks like. And we'll look at that. Next week we're going to look at the characteristics of a growing life. I'm going to ask you two questions. Are these qualities yours? Are they increasing? Are they not yours? It's real simple. That's the outline of my sermon next week. All right? You have that in the weekly word. There's your questions. Seven characteristics. Are these yours increasing? Are they not present at all? And, and, but, but before he gets into that, Peter predicates, though, about what our salvation is all about. Is that we are ready to grow in godliness. So thrust of these verses. God has given us everything. We are all set. He's given us faith. He'll give us grace and peace. He's given us everything and He's given us these promises to lay hold of. As you say, it was all accomplished for us, the cross. How appropriate is it for us this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper? And we're going to do that here in a little bit. It's accomplished when Jesus, falsely accused, nailed to a cross unjustly, took upon Himself the wrath of God. And having done that, God's grace is then able to flow to us. It's in the cross of Christ. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, really. It's an indication. He said, I'm trusting the grace of Christ to help me in all my weaknesses. God, I'm not looking anywhere else. I'm just looking to the grace of God in Christ. And if you're here this morning and are a believer in Christ and have these things, boy, celebrate and take it. If you're not a believer and thinking, oh, maybe if I drink this cup and eat this bread, that's going to help me, that's not going to help you. It's going to help his faith in the living Christ. So let's pray and then we'll take communion together. Lord, I thank You for Your grace and Your kindness to us. It's the reason why Psalm 96, as Darren read for us, the the fields can rejoice and the trees clap their hands for joy when You come back and judge because we know this, You come back, You're going to restore all things and bring us to Yourself. We don't have to fear the condemnation that comes to those who are without Christ. And so we too can sing for joy to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in holy attire. We can tremble before Him because of all you've done for us in Jesus. And that, Lord, we do rejoice. I pray you would um, continue to show us the, the oil field that we have below us, the incredible, unfathomable riches of Christ. And as we celebrate the supper this morning, when we do it seeking to please you, confessing our sins, trusting in Christ to make us righteous in all our ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The men are going to come and pass out the bread. We'll sing some songs focusing upon the cross of Christ, focusing upon knowing and trusting Him.